It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 264, September 18th, 2011. Recorded September 16th. If the following words don't frighten you, then this is something you'll be interested in downloading and trying for yourself. And here are the words. The Windows Developer Preview is a pre-beta version of Windows 8 for developers. These downloads include pre-release software that may change without notice. The software is provided as is, and you bear the risk of using it. It may not be stable, operate correctly, or work the way the final version of the software will. It should not be used in a production environment. The features and functionality in this pre-release software may not appear in the final version. Some product features and functionality may require advanced or additional hardware or installation of other software. End quote. Well, two days after the Windows 8 pre-beta was released, I installed it. Now, I had intended to include this segment on next week's program, the 25th, but I decided that enough people have enough interest in Windows 8 that a first-look report was appropriate right now. This is by no means an extensive review, and Windows 8 won't ship until late 2012, more than a full year from now. The production schedule could slip so that Windows 8 won't ship until 2013, I mention that simply to emphasize how early Microsoft is in the production schedule. If you want to download it and try it, you'd better have a machine that is not your primary machine you can run it on. Anybody can get it. There are three flavors of the preview, 64-bit with developer tools, 4.8 gigabytes, 64-bit system without developer tools, 3.6 gigabytes, and for 32-bit systems without the developer tools at 2.8 gigabytes. I decided to install on an older 32-bit notebook computer so I didn't have to choose between including or excluding the developer tools. That decision was made for me. The 2.8 gigabyte download took the better part of an hour. During that time, I prepared the notebook. This does not mean that I took it into a dimly lit room and spoke gently to it about the wondrous event it was about to experience. It does mean that I prepared space on the hard drive for a new operating system by deleting Linux from the machine. Sorry. If you're thinking about Windows 8, here's what you'll need, as a minimum, a 1 gigahertz or faster 32-bit or 64-bit machine, 1 gigabyte of RAM, or if you're installing the 64-bit version, 2 gigabytes of RAM, 16 gigabytes available on your hard drive, or 20 gigabytes if you're installing the 64-bit version, a DirectX 9 graphics device with WDDM 1.0 or higher driver. Taking advantage of the touch input requires a screen that supports multi-touch. And to run Metro-style apps, you need a screen resolution of 1024 by 768 or greater. Well, I had everything but the touch screen. So at 4.50 on Thursday afternoon, I started the installation process. By 5.10, Windows 8 was installed. 20 minutes. And I had set Windows 7 as the default. Yes, Windows 7. That's still primarily what I'll be using on that machine. After making Windows 7 the default, I booted to Windows 8 and was asked to name the computer. I did that. 
Then I had to choose Express Settings or Customize. I, of course, selected Customize. It sees my network, asks if I want to share. Yes, I do. It asks about automatic updates. Do I want them? Well, yes. It asks if I want to provide usability feedback to Microsoft. Okay. It asks about checking for online solutions to problems. Good idea. Do that. It wants to set up a Windows Live ID and needs my email address. Okay. Now, I found the tab didn't move from field to field. That's bad. Several more screens followed. Oh, I realized that the email address I gave it is one that already has a Windows Live account. Okay, do I recall the password? Well, uh, no. I don't feel like looking it up. So I gave it another address. It accepted that address and finalized the settings. It then said, preparing your PC for a few moments. And then I was asked to verify the address, and around 5.20, I have the Start menu, which now consumes the entire screen. Now, from this point on, take these comments as essentially stream of consciousness. Think Virginia Woolf. And also take them with fairly large grains of salt. I haven't had much time yet to look at Windows 8. The installation was impressive, astonishing even. Less than half an hour, and I took the long route. But I'd like to see if Windows 7 is still working. I can log off, but I see no option to restart the computer. Once I've logged off, I see no option to restart the computer, or log on for that matter. I can look at the pretty picture, but that's it. I click, I click, I click, I right-click, I double-click. Ah, finally! The double-click caused a panel to slide up. Now I can reboot. But I'm wondering, could Microsoft have made that any more obscure? Possibly, but only with a lot of hard work. I selected Restart. The computer startup screen looks a lot like Grub, the grand unified boot manager. Maybe this is a leftover from when Ubuntu was on the computer, but I don't think so. Selecting Windows 7 boots to Windows 7, and everything that's supposed to be there is there. Whew. All right, back to Windows 8. Well, Windows 8 thinks I'm in Anaheim. Now, that's where the developer conference was, but I'm not in Anaheim. I've already changed the clock and the weather applets to tell them I'm in the middle of Ohio. I guess I shouldn't expect those to communicate with the control panel, at least not yet. Lots more clicking, and I got the weather panel back. This time I removed Anaheim took it off completely, so I didn't even have to see it anymore. But it still doesn't communicate with anything else. But at least now it shows the weather for central Ohio. So where am I exactly? And where are all the features that Microsoft borrowed from Apple? Gone, apparently, as they've tried to make a desktop computer work like an iPhone, or maybe a Windows phone. Microsoft, you know, a desktop computer is not a phone. Well, less than an hour into the discovery process, I was beginning to be sorry that I'd replaced Linux with Windows 8. But stick with me. Finally, I blundered my way into what looks like a Windows 7 control panel. I typed location, and there it is, region, change location. Seems to me that it shouldn't take 20 minutes to find this. Uh, well, but location is only for country. What about location settings? No. Here I can turn on the Windows Location Platform, but not tell Windows where I am. I'm pretty sure I'm not in Anaheim. The Time Zone panel says I have managed to set it to Eastern Time, but I still don't find a way to tell the system that I'm not in Anaheim. There is an icon on the phone, I'm sorry, there's an icon on the desktop that says Near Me, and when I click that I'm shown businesses in Anaheim. I right-click and I can see a map. 
Apparently, this Mickey Mouse version of Windows thinks I'm at Disneyland because it shows me on the map that I'm standing on Catella Avenue, just south of Disneyland. There's no apparent way to tell it where I really am. I try F1, F2, F3, all the way up to F12, nothing, escape, nothing. Right or left click zooms in on the map. I don't want the map. But wait, there's a left pointing arrow near the top left, and I'm back in Anaheim. Well, the system thinks I'm 2,245 miles from where I really am. Maybe turning off the Windows location platform will convince it otherwise? Nope. Still in Anaheim. All right, I'm giving up on this. The next morning, I revisited that topic and realized that my mantra needs to be this. This is pre-beta software on a pre-beta operating system. Clearly, this feature will eventually have a way for the user to specify a location if the hardware geolocation component doesn't do it, or if no such hardware exists. Actually, I think I spent way too much time looking for something that just wasn't there yet. For more than a decade, right-clicking has opened a context menu. Now it seems to do nothing. This is causing me some problems. And the desktop, or the phone, has crap all over it, and the crap is different-sized crap. I presume there's a way to change all this, but it certainly isn't obvious at this point. Some people will be distressed that solitaire is missing, but now there's zero gravity. I tried that, but I have to use finger gestures to play the game. I don't have a touch screen, but actually at this point I do have some finger gestures for Microsoft. And once the game was started, Alt-F4, the universal quit key combo, does nothing. Left or right click? Uh-uh. Control-Alt-Delete? Well, there's the task manager. I kill zero gravity. And I'm done with that. Next morning... Well, the interface looks like it's going to be great for tablets and phones. For those who use desktop systems or notebooks, it seems we can turn that feature off. Currently, that requires a registry edit, and that makes it an all-or-nothing change. It'll have to be a little finer grain than that. There's an icon called Store. Nothing there. I can't fault Microsoft for this. It's a feature that isn't ready. And this is, after all, pre-beta software. But now that I'm in the store, I can't get out. Oh, if I press the Windows key, I get the desktop, but the task manager shows the store is still running. Is there any way to close an application in Windows 8? I haven't found it so far. The next morning, I did some additional research, and it seems that apps are not intended to be closed. So Alt-F4 no longer really exists. Apps are just suspended. When suspended, they take no CPU time, although they do continue to reside in memory. If more memory is needed, Windows will flush the application. I first encountered this kind of behavior more than a decade ago with a Palm device. Although jarring at first, I think I'll get used to it quickly. But I'd still like a way to terminate an application other than via the task manager. Remember Windows ME? Now, Windows ME is recognized even by Microsoft as the worst version of Windows ever. Vista was a distant second-place stinker. A couple of hours in, it was beginning to seem to me that Windows 8 would surpass anything ME or Vista could do to smell up a room. The next morning, I reminded myself, this is a pre-beta operating system. This is a pre-beta operating system. This, well, you get the idea. So, it's time to take a deep breath, visit the Windows Developer Center, listen to a talk by Microsoft Windows and Windows Live President Steven Sanofsky. Maybe I'm missing something that should be completely obvious.
Windows 7 is being used on 450 million computers and has finally surpassed Windows XP, which I still use at the office. Sanofsky characterizes Windows 8 as a bold overhaul, but he also says that all features of Windows 7 are included in Windows 8. Hmm. Okay, we'll see. The changes, according to Sanofsky, are in four major areas, and let me go over those just briefly today. First is the Windows 8 experience. Is Windows 8 bigger and slower? From my experience, limited, granted, it is not. It's actually surprisingly fast, even on a computer with modest hardware. If that continues through development, that is a big win. To log in from the lock screen on a touch device, you don't even need a password. Instead, you touch specific locations or make specific motions on a photo. This is cool, but only if you have a touch device. I still don't like the tiles in the start page, but I don't like a cluttered desktop. Maybe this will work out once I figure out how to modify what's there. For touch device users, Microsoft has copied the iPad pinch function. If you're using a mouse and a keyboard, you should be able to do everything you can do with a touch screen. And maybe you can, but I haven't yet figured out how. Or maybe that's still in development. The second big feature is what's called Metro-style applications. Everything is full screen. Everything. I'm used to seeing many applications on the screen, and this seems like a gigantic step backwards. Different is not necessarily good or bad, it's just different. Given the way I work, when I often need to see several application windows simultaneously, I think this would be a problem, but I suspect there will be a solution. The view for developers is an interesting one. The tools that Microsoft is making available for developers to build applications is astonishingly web-centric with JavaScript and HTML5 built in. This is not a topic of interest to most of the people who read the TechBiter website or listen to this podcast, so I'll end the discussion of what will excite developers, but I do want to say for users, keep in mind that Metro applications require a screen that's at least 1,024 pixels wide, and if you want side-by-side functionality, which does give you the ability to have two things open on one screen, that requires a screen at least 1,366 pixels wide. The third key point is hardware. Earlier, I mentioned that Windows 8 works surprisingly well on small, wimpy devices, even at the pre-beta development point when the code can reasonably be assumed to contain a lot of debugging code. Windows 8 supports ARM processors. Those are the ones you'll find in a lot of handheld devices. Depending on the system you have, Windows 8 will start in as little as 5 seconds. And a new connected standby mode that allows for instant-on functionality shuts the system down just as fast. This makes longer battery life possible and that's important as notebooks and tablets become more widely accepted. My notebook, for example, starts following the power on self-test in about 23 seconds. By comparison, Windows 7 on that same computer takes 45 seconds. Acer, Asus, Samsung, Toshiba, Lenovo, and others are all currently working on or making super-thin notebook computers and tablet computers that will work with Windows 8. My next morning analysis of the hardware component is that this may be the most astonishing aspect of Windows 8. Windows 8 is scalable. Essentially, the same operating system and the same user experience will be available on a phone, a netbook, a notebook, a tablet, a desktop, and a server. That's a huge range. 
Despite my misgivings about some aspects of the user interface, the scalability earns my respect. And the final big change? Cloud-based services. The future is clearly cloud-based computing, even though I don't much care for that term. I would call these server-based applications. This is a sea change for computer users, but it's going to be a tough conversion for some of us. Everything you know is wrong comes to mind, and what's coming from Windows 8 is both frightening and awe-inspiring. Some other things worth mentioning, there is a reset and refresh option. These promise to make it possible to return your computer to a known state, either the system as it was at the beginning or a state that includes all of your installed applications. Third-party software providers offered an option similar to this more than 10 years ago, but it will be a most welcome addition to the Windows operating system. There's an option to reset your PC and start over. This deletes all personal files and returns the computer to its initial state. This is really handy when it's time to sell your computer or give it away. The Start menu is now a Start screen. I alluded to this earlier. But from the Start screen, it's possible to just start typing a command. Just type CMD and press Enter to get a command window. Or type Internet and press Enter to open Internet Explorer. Now, in, in Internet Explorer 10... The address bar is at the bottom. After you type the URL and the page opens, the website is full screen. No Chrome at all. Roaming is going to be big. This makes it possible via Windows Live to use multiple computers and to have all the same credentials and settings available wherever you are. So, what's next? Where do we go from here? Well, the next morning I unplugged the network cable and tried to start Windows 8. The lock screen told me that I was not on a network. I knew that and I should use the password that I used most recently. Well, under Windows 8, I've only used one password, so I used it six times. No luck. When I reattached the network cable, the same password worked. And clearly, this is a bug, and clearly it will be fixed before the release candidate, and maybe even before the beta version, which is the next version that will be coming along. Windows 8 is currently in pre-beta form. I've mentioned that several times. It's important to note. At this stage, the Windows 7 preview was technically limited to developers, but the code was leaked almost immediately. Microsoft decided this time to make the pre-beta public from the start. Good choice. The next milestone will be the true beta release, date uncertain, followed by the release candidate, and only one release candidate is on the schedule, date uncertain, and then the release to manufacturing code, Date uncertain. And finally, general availability. Date uncertain. According to Stephen Sanofsky, the driver here is quality, not the calendar. But if you want a date, look for late 2012. The bottom line for Windows 8, promise and challenge. At this point, no cats. This is not production software, so there's just a big question mark there. I mentioned on Facebook that I had installed Windows 8, and one person commented, well, now you test it for a week or two and write a long, glowing encomium on TechBiter, I presume? Well, nothing would make me happier than doing that, because I know I'll be using Windows 8 sooner or later. But at the time, I said the glowing would be more like radioactive waste. One thing that it's important to understand, though, is that Windows 8 is not yet even beta software. Some features that are present now may be absent when the application is released to manufacturing, along, one would hope, with most of the bugs. Some features that aren't yet present will be there at release to manufacturing time. 
It's clear that Windows 8 will be a much better operating system for those who have touch devices. For those who don't have touch devices, we'll see. For more information, you can visit the Windows 8 website. There's a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website, and there you can download installers. Don't install Windows 8 to replace your existing Windows XP or Windows 7 or even Vista. And until you have a touch-based device, you may not want to install it at all. I've now used Windows 8 for less than two days, so there's a lot to learn. Today, I'm unhappy with some of what I see, but I also see a lot of promise. So, stay tuned. If you've never used a system with two monitors, there's some chance that you consider people who use two monitors to be a bit daft. I thought that at one time, but then I got a second monitor at the office. At home, I decided I could make do with one monitor if it was large enough. Bad choice. I bought a 24-inch diagonal monitor for use at home, but it was always running out of space. I often have two browsers open, and applications such as Adobe Photoshop are much easier to use if some of the clutter is on a second screen. For several months, I used an old 12-inch screen as the second monitor. It was helpful, but I wanted matched monitors. So I bought a second 24-inch monitor. Wow, it's now 42 inches from the left side to the right side of the monitor. My primary monitor was a ViewSonic, so I selected a second ViewSonic, hoping that they would be a reasonably close match. They are two slightly different models, though. The primary monitor is controlled by a Pantone Huey calibration device. Looks like I will need to upgrade to the Pro model to control both screens, and I had trouble getting even an acceptable match between the two monitors. The new monitor is visibly brighter than the older monitor, but eventually I achieved an acceptable balance. But then, every time the screen went to sleep, the new one, it discarded the settings. It didn't forget the settings. To restore them, all I needed to do was open the monitor-based control panel and close it. But that was an annoyance. ViewSonic agreed that there was a problem. They told me to send the monitor back. I paid for overnight shipping to California, thinking that this might cause ViewSonic to understand how critically I needed the monitor. For the next four weeks, four weeks, I had a single monitor. When ViewSonic shipped the monitor back to me, they sent it FedEx ground. That's a five-day trip from California. So much for the great customer service ViewSonic used to have. Well, the good news is that everything is working fine now, and of course there was no charge for the repair, but still the company's we'll fix it whenever we manage to get around to it attitude is more than a little galling. I've used nothing but ViewSonic monitors for something like 20 years, but lately I've heard from others that the company's customer service has slipped badly, and so it would seem. The next time I need a monitor, it might be a Samsung. But my main point is the need for two monitors, and a lot of people really do need two monitors. There's an image on the TechBiter Worldwide website, and in that image you'll see there's a lot going on. There's an email program, a web browser, and a code editor open on the left screen. On the right screen there's a clock, an instant message client, and a password manager. That's a fairly quiet day. When I use applications such as Adobe Photoshop or InDesign, the second monitor is a great parking place for toolbars, palettes, and other program components that I need access to but would like to have out of the way of the graphic or publication that I'm working on. During the four weeks that I had only a single monitor, I was constantly frustrated by the need to minimize one window to have access to another window. What I learned is that no single monitor, no matter how large, is ever a match for two monitors, at least for me. I find the physical separation helpful. 
When I drag a window or an application to the monitor on the right, it remains in my peripheral vision, but it's there just for occasional use or for reference. Or if you ever need to have a help file open while you're using an application, perhaps trying to learn a new Photoshop technique or trying to figure out how to perform a task in Word, you'll immediately realize how helpful that second reference screen is. As everyone around him at the office added a second screen and proclaimed how much better everything worked with an extra monitor, one co-worker resisted the addition of that second screen. Finally, he agreed to give it a try. That was more than a year ago. The second monitor, it's still on his desk, and he has never expressed a desire to have it removed. In short circuits, Mozilla, tear down this memory leak. Firefox has always had a problem with memory usage, and despite the fact that Mozilla has promised version after version to fix the memory leak, and version after version, the memory leak has continued to be there. Mozilla says for most users, Firefox doesn't use an abnormally large amount of memory. For others, however, Firefox's memory consumption is a major problem. The trouble with that point of view is that I've never found anyone who uses Firefox that describes the browser's memory usage as normal. Again, quoting Mozilla, plugins can cause Firefox to use more memory when they're used and may not release their memory until Firefox is closed. It's a good idea to make sure you're using the most recent version of every plugin by visiting Mozilla's plugin check page. To save the maximum amount of memory, uninstall any unnecessary plugins. Continuing to quote Mozilla, Normal Firefox memory usage reported by Windows might be as high as 100 to 150 megabytes. These numbers will vary because Firefox is configured by default to use more memory on systems that have more memory available and less on systems with less. If you experience substantially more usage than this, there may be a problem, or you may just be viewing pages with large amounts of data. 100 to 150 megabytes. Wow, if it were only that low. As I was writing this article, I checked, and Firefox was using 603 megabytes. Yeah, that is four to six times what Mozilla claims. These promises of lower memory usage date back to Firefox version 2. The current version of Firefox is version 7. Don't get me wrong, I like Firefox. It's my preferred browser. But I wish they'd fix the memory problem. Netflix, which has been a high flyer for several years, has stumbled badly recently. Apparently, the company thought that a 30% rate increase wouldn't affect customer loyalty. Have these guys looked at the economy lately? For me, that 30% increase meant that I dropped streaming, and I'd already reduced the number of concurrent DVDs from 3 to 2. About 1 million of the company's 25 million subscribers have simply canceled the service. And Netflix stock is now under $170 per share. That's down from more than $300 per share as recently as July, an almost 50% drop. This is the first time that Netflix's customer base has declined. The company has tried very hard to please customers, at least until that price increase thing came along. Now the company says it expects to continue losing customers for a while. The company's survival certainly seems not to be in jeopardy, but its star... That's more than a little tarnished. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. 
And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.